0: this show is sponsored by better help don't you feel you can do great things when you feel you're at your best it may be you finally finished that project or you're excelling in a new pastime you've found there are all sorts that can make us feel like this but equally there are all sorts of things in life that can come at you all at the same time and leave you feeling bogged down like you're stuck in a mire and if so then you feel that you just can't be that best version of you that you want to be Now something useful that can help you in such times as this is therapy. I've had my own times in the past where things have come at me and I've found that talking to someone has been nothing but beneficial because it's not just for those who've experienced trauma in their lives, not at all. It can help you to learn new skills, how to cope with things, or to develop boundaries for yourself. All steps that can help empower you to be the best version of you that there is because there's no stopping you when you feel like that. If you're considering therapy as a route, then BetterHelp is a great option. It's entirely online for you, affordable and convenient. It really couldn't be simpler to do either. All it takes is simply filling out a short questionnaire and as quick as you'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist. If you proceed and after a time you feel that isn't working for you, then you can simply switch therapists whenever you wish with no extra charge. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com/slash TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com/slash TCE. Hello, all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around I strive to bring you tales of true crime that are often not the norm. That may be unfamiliar to you or long forgotten and that may horrify or mystify you from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland doing so is myself Paul the creator host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title my mog Pixie, the true crime enthusi cat is of course here with me and we're completed by yourselves the enthusiasts who make the show happen simple as it's wonderful as always having you join us today and I hope that as you have and it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So I'm just about into the swing of the new series by now then. It's always good to be back and busier than ever, I do love it like, and I begin by thanking you all kindly for your feedback concerning the Series 8 opening tale, Poacher, Petman, Predator. If you haven't yet heard it, then both parts are out now for you to. and if you have then I'm sure you'll agree he's a right evil bastard indeed, Taylor, isn't he? Certainly responsible for who knows how much more horror and totally where he deserves to end his days. Totally. I'm glad to have washed my hands of him. Big thanks also go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show with shout outs this time around to Graham Houlihan, Karen Hillier, Martin Newman, Linda Raleigh, Lisa Thornton, Alison Hayes and Crystal, plus Heather Keaton, Amanda Hall, Angela Biesti, Chelsea Zwetloot, Chris Hassler, Richard leonhard and Carol Owen, who have each opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you so much, all. It's so kind of you to do that, and it does mean the world that you have. You each rule. You really do. Now, I'm currently working on the latest Patreon episode that shall be out soon. But if, like the kind lot I've just mentioned, you fancy some extra enthusiasts yourselves, or perhaps you'd even like some show stuff, then there are already plenty of tales out there for your listening. Well, Pleasures doesn't really sound right, but you know what I mean. A full series worth plus of tales such as Sanctuary, Angel from Hell, Wicked Beyond Belief, or the latest one that I've added, Are You Sure You're Legal? To name just a few of them, it's a right mixed bag there. These can, like Chorley FM, be coming in your ears quicker than Zelensky after a jet. And it's a doddle to do, it really is. Simply head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Always with the podcast suffix on it. Or you can skip even doing that because there's a link always present in the episode show notes with the show contact details that will take you right to the Patreon page. So not too much buggering around this time then, we've quite a tale to get to. And for this time around, we're off back up to the town of Middlesbrough, right at the top of North Yorkshire. couple of stats about Middlesbrough. It's famed for its former iron, steel and shipbuilding industries. It was the first major British town and industrial target to be bombed during the Second World War. It's the home of the Parmo which is reportedly a a popular form of takeaway food in the area that consists of a breaded cutlet of chicken or pork, topped with white bechamel sauce and cheese, which personally, I think, sounds and looks absolutely minging. Famous folk to hail from Middlesbrough include explorer Captain James Cook, stunted magician Paul Daniels, musician Chris Rear, Bob Mortimer of Vic and Bob and Shooting Stars fame, really want to see those fingers. And the footballing legend that is Cami himself, Chris Kamara. Now my fave stat this time around is that Middlesbrough's Transporter Bridge, the world's longest remaining transporter, is the only place in the UK where you can legally bungee jump from a bridge, should you want to of course. First climbing the 210 steps to the top and then diving the 160 foot down towards the river Tees. Not for me whatsoever. Now equally a fave stat, reportedly at some time in the 1970s actor Terry Scott, he of Terry and June fame and the voice of Penfold in the original Danger Mouse, somehow managed to drive his car off the end of this bridge and was only saved from landing in the murky waters of the River Tees by the bridge's safety net. Obviously that was one journey he couldn't carry on with. I get my coat. Now, we've been to Middlesbrough before. We were actually up there last series with the episode Wilson Jinx and the Carnage in Class E23. But this time, we go back a few more years again than the sad tale of Nicky Conroy, back to the start of 1990, but for a crime that is no less as horrifying. The tale I'm about to bring you concerns an individual that the senior officer involved in the case described as the most evil, dangerous, cunning and devious a criminal i have encountered in almost 27 years as a police officer and when you hear of what the individual concerned did and his aspirations you'll see just why he said that and how bang on of you it is the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events including depictions of injury detail and references to acts of animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled, The Kill List. Back at the turn of 1990, 56-year-old eminent dermatologist Dr David Burkett had for many years thrown himself into his work as a physician his chosen branch of medicine being his work as a skin specialist, and was at the time based mainly at the former Carter Bequest Hospital on Middlesbrough's Northgate Road. Though he gave himself an arduous work schedule and consulted with, alongside private work, at least eight weekly clinical sessions between five district general hospitals spread over the 20-mile radius, incorporating Middlesbrough, North Allerton and Hartlepool. Encouraged to pursue a career in the sciences at the urging of his father, Lionel, an analytical chemist, David went as a King's Scholar to Durham School and subsequently to Emmanuel College at Cambridge, where he obtained a double first in the Natural Sciences Tripos. He then entered St Bartholomew's Hospital in London for his medical training, and it was whilst there that his interest in dermatology was awakened, though his training here was interrupted when he was called up for National Service. Serving for two years as a medical specialist in the R.A.M.C. in Germany before returning to Barts. In 1967, he returned to northeast England as a senior registrar at the Royal Victoria Infirmary in Newcastle upon Tyne, qualifying as a skin consultant here and remaining working at the hospital until the early 1970s. Before moving down to Hastings briefly and then returning to the South Tees area in 1976 where he would remain until 1990. By this time, alongside his work schedule, he was chairman of the Northern Regional Dermatology Subcommittee and a member of the Committee of the British Association of Dermatologists, seldom missing a meeting of the Dermatology Section of the Royal Society of Medicine in London. Aside from his busy life as a physician, Dr Burkitt's main hobby and arguably is equal interest and passion, was paleopathology, the branch of science concerned with the pathological conditions found in ancient human and animal remains. He had studied and developed this field for many years, eventually to an extent over his 30-year career, which resulted in his acceptance as a renowned international authority on the subject, which he consulted for for the government, and had even been involved in examining remains found on the wreck of the Mary Rose when it was raised by the Trust in 1982. The same year, he was awarded the Medicine-Gilliland Travelling Fellowship by the Royal Society and used this to further his studies in America and Germany, the first of many travels in which Dr. Burkitt was to go on to give paleopathology talks. Though he was by nature a retiring man and could rarely be persuaded to speak in public at medical meetings, despite his intellect and impartiality, his talks on old bones and his command of the subject fascinated medical audiences everywhere. However, such a busy schedule had an impact on other aspects of his life though. David had met and married his wife, Stephanie Prince, daughter of renowned journalist John Prince in 1962 the marriage going on to produce three children Simon the following year Charlotte in 1965 and Laura in 1973 but by 1987 the marriage was breaking down and David and Stephanie were divorced in May 1988 although remaining on good terms with the elder two children by that time both having left home and living down in London Laura lived for a period after the marriage split with her father, so she could still attend King's Manor School, coincidentally, the other school that in two thousand and ten merged with the school Nicky Conroy attended, Hall Garth, to create Oakland's Community College. But in November nineteen eighty nine Laura moved back in with her mother, leaving David alone in the home that the family had shared since nineteen seventy seven number twenty six Cornfield Road a large six-bedroomed house in the Middlesbrough suburb of Linthorpe. Perhaps, if it was possible to do so, David threw himself into his work even more now, though he was seemingly one of these people who could get 28 hours out of every day. Around his busy enough sounding schedule, he kept himself fit and active by being a dedicated and keen runner, completing the London Marathon in 1988 and 1989 with sponsorship from his Middlesbrough Dermatology Department, and though as we've said he was a private person by nature, modest even, his dry sense of humour, his intellect and ability, and his kind nature, made him popular with colleagues and friends alike, of which he made easily, and he was soon a member of the local Crown Green Bowling Club, and particularly a regular partaker in the club's quiz nights. David often went out with friends on a Saturday evening to the local little theatre club, and there was nothing to suggest that the evening of Saturday, the 3rd of February, 1990, would be any different. That day, he had been busy as usual, visiting several shops in Linthorpe and Middlesbrough town centre, calling into Thomas Cook travel agents to collect brochures ahead of a planned trip to America that he was taking Laura on, and dropping Laura back at her mother's house sometime in the afternoon. He was home by late afternoon, and after collecting the note that he had discovered posted through his door, placed it onto the telephone table in the hall, and began to prepare his evening meal. He was certainly midway through preparing this by 5.20pm, because a man walking through the alleyway that adjoined Dr Burkett's home noticed him sat at the kitchen table. Now, perhaps he had already done, but certainly at some point around this time, David went back to the hall table and retrieved the note which had been left for him and which he discovered when he got home. On headed notepaper, it was correspondence from a courier company in the Middlesbrough area, Demon Dispatch, and which read Telephone 14680 828 325 Demon Dispatch Motorcycle Couriers 24-hour service Mr Burkett A dispatch rider called today with a parcel, Phone the above number as soon as possible to arrange a convenient time for delivery. By 6.30pm, David had still not been in touch with the friends he usually went out with, and though one of them tried telephoning him, there was no answer. Thinking it unusual of David not to have been in touch, by 6.50pm, The same friend had gone around to his house to find the curtains drawn with no response from knocking and heading down the side of the house had noticed that the kitchen lights were on although the windows were steamed up being struck by the very definite smell of boiled over potatoes that had caused this. Puzzled but not at the time overly concerned she then left a note for David telling him that they had called and were going along to the club inviting him to join them. David, however, did not arrive that evening. But when by midday on the following Sunday the curtains of Doctor Burkett's house were still drawn and his hungry cats were now waiting by the front door, his next-door neighbors became worried. Repeated telephone calls and knocks had gone unanswered, and neighbors eventually managed to get in touch later that afternoon with his daughter Laura, telling her of their concerns, and so Laura who had a spare key made her way around to the house now by now the doctor's neighbors sensing that something had happened and something upsetting was likely about to unfold tried to stop laura from going into the house first but unsuccessfully as even given the general foreboding she felt she let herself in but the sight that met her was unimaginable for she discovered her father lying in his downstairs study, face down. Laura was to recall, years later, All I remember is that his head was so hammered that it was very, very flat. The hallway, the carpet and the walls were covered in his blood and his brains and bits of his skull. By some bizarre protective mechanism, it seemed almost as if this was happening to someone else. It was as if I could see myself going into the house. I was on the outside looking in. Someone called the police and an ambulance and then the nightmare of it all began. Now reportedly Laura ran from the house screaming Tell me my dad isn't dead. A later post-mortem was to show that Dr. Burkett had been struck some 17 times with a heavy blunt instrument thought to have been a hammer and that had caused such catastrophic injury to him that his head had been all but obliterated. And his 16-year-old daughter found him like that. You can't even imagine it, can you? A murder investigation spearheaded by Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard was launched immediately, and when officers arrived at 26 Cornfield Road, they were horrified by the scene in front of them. From the heavy bloodstain into the scene, it became apparent that the doctor had been attacked initially in the hallway of his home and incapacitated, but his killer had then fastened two pieces of a unique type of black and green cord around his arms and had used this to drag him into his downstairs study, where the onslaught had then continued. Though there were signs of the entire house being cursorily searched, and the large six-bedroom property was one that would appeal to any burglar. There were no signs of any forced entry to the property, and very little seemed to be missing, the only item of note being Dr. Burkett's old and battered leather fold-over wallet, thought to have contained between 50 to a £100, a silver fob-type watch and chain that the doctor habitually wore in his top jacket pocket, and bizarrely, noticed later by his son Simon, a human skull dating from Norman times that the doctor had had for many years that had damage to the left eye and the rear and that he used as a prop in his lectures as an early example of primitive surgery. Also found on the floor in the hallway with a handwritten note from the courier services, Demon Dispatch that I mentioned earlier and a heavily bloodstained limited edition co-op carrier bag advertising co-op tea. Bearing the inscription, People who care, the co op fusspots always insist on the best. The bag also appeared stretched at a point, and this, combined with the bloodstain into it, convinced officers that it had been used to house or wrap the instrument, as I said, thought to be a cross pain hammer, that was used to kill Dr. Burkitt. On the day after the doctor's body was discovered, dci leonard issued an appeal for witnesses to come forward telling the press dr burkett was a well respected man both professionally and by his friends and neighbors he was a quiet friendly dedicated man and very caring there is a strong possibility that the murderer was someone the doctor knew or expected to call at the house because there is no sign of a forced entry or a struggle. We also can't rule out the possibility that the murderer may have been in the house when the neighbour called and might have left some time later. So we would still like to appeal to witnesses from Saturday afternoon until Sunday afternoon at 4pm. Now, though it was 4pm on the Sunday when the body was discovered, through a combination of house-to-house inquiries and retracing Dr Burkitt's last known movements, Police were confident that he'd been killed between 5.20pm on Saturday the 3rd of February when David was seen at the window of his house and 6.50pm when his neighbour who couldn't get an answer at the door had pushed a note through. This time frame had also generated a few lines of inquiry for them for there were reports of a man seen sat on Dr Burkett's next door neighbour's garden wall at about 6.10pm two youths running across the road and causing a near accident about half an hour later and crucially a motorcycle was seen at around five thirty p.m on the day of his killing parked on the drive outside his house now this tied in with a tire mark discovered by senior crime officers on the paving of the driveway though detectives did question jewelers and second-hand dealers in the Middlesbrough area evidence was equally as soon to come to light that persuaded detectives that this was no burglary gone massively wrong here for it soon appeared that the kindly doctor had been targeted deliberately by his killer the handwritten courier note as i said was found in the house but there was no corresponding parcel found with it and though it was on legit headed notepaper Demon Dispatch had actually ceased trading some two years previously. Further, the telephone number that had been given asking Dr. burkett to call to rearrange his delivery was found actually to be the telephone number of a phone box at the junction of Union Street and Parliament Street in Linthorpe, only a short distance away from Dr. burkett's home. It seemed likely that someone who had known the doctor's movements and he was somewhat security conscious having an alarm system in the house had deliberately handwritten a bogus note and had then awaited at the telephone box the doctor's return home and subsequent telephone call arranging re-delivery of the parcel it would serve to give the killer the element of surprise in his murderous intent and right up until the last second the doctor would suspect nothing even if a motorcycle pulled up on his driveway Because, after all, couriers do use bikes, don't they? But, for what motive? Who on earth would have such a grudge against such a kindly, eminent man to commit such an orgy of violence and overkill towards him, a man that was found to be universally liked, admired and respected by all who knew him? The former managing director of the Demon Dispatch Firm, Alan Thompson, was spoken to and could produce an employee list, and at the time of their operating, the firm had had only one motorcycle courier working for them, a man named Jim Lee. Though suspicion fell on him for a short time, he ultimately had an alibi for the day of the murder, and following him given a set of his fingerprints, a handwriting sample, and voice recording, he was ruled out of the inquiry. He later admitted, That was a really frightening moment for me because I thought, I'm in the frame for murder. Yeah, frightening, eh? And oh yes, you heard me right, a voice recording because, although it was not acted upon or tied immediately to the murder, police came to believe that the killer had contacted police mere hours after the killing. Later the same Saturday evening, At about 9pm, an anonymous 999 call had been made from a telephone in Union Street and that was taken by 999 operator Pauline Collins. When she'd asked the caller which emergency service was required, the caller merely said, Police, 26 Cornfield Road. He then hung up the telephone. Now, this telephone kiosk, still in place today, was found to be about 15 minutes walk from cornfield road but no police officers were dispatched as a result of the call and there are conflicting reports as to why some accounts i found whilst researching say that because no crime was mentioned in this short missive a directed patrol was a resource not utilized that saturday evening whilst others claim that there was confusion over which cornfield road in the middlesbrough area was being referred to for there is Walter one some 10 miles away in Thornaby, and so no immediate action was taken by police. What this information did provide was a witness who was waiting for a bus that evening near to the telephone kiosk, and who saw a man waiting around and inside it at the crucial time. The man had drawn attention to himself because although three times he picked up the phone, as though making a call, The witness waiting for the bus only heard him speaking once. By the time the bus came, as it set off, the witness noticed the man walk away from the phone box down connecting Parliament Road. He gleaned enough of a description of the man for an artist's impression of him to be made and distributed, and if you head over to the show's Instagram page, you can see it as I managed to find it to reproduce whilst researching. A tape recording of the brief message from the anonymous caller was also sent to the late northeast East Jack Windsor-Lewis, who had worked on the Yorkshire Ripper Inquiry analysing the infamous Wearside Jack hoax tape. And although it was one of the shortest examples of speech he had had to analyse throughout his career, from the mere four words that the caller had spoken, he was able to state that the caller was from the northeast and displayed a controlled personality it sounds as vague as anything that does of course and how you arrive at that i don't know but you work with what you have don't you hence the reason for a voice recording of jim lee being taken and then 12 days after the murder the killer made contact once again but this time directly to police on the 16th of february An envelope arrived at Dunning Road Police Station, where the manhunt for Dr. Burkett's killer was being led from. Locally postmarked, but addressed incorrectly to DCS Leonard, Leonard having the O and the A in its spelling mixed up. The writing on the front of the envelope had been written laboriously and haphazardly with a helix stencil, so it gives the impression of someone deranged as having written it it was the word that jumped straight into my mind instantly when I saw it, deranged. It read in bold, Urgent, DCS Leonard, Dunning Road Police Station, Middlesbrough, Cleveland, Murder Investigation of Dr. Burkitt. What was contained inside that envelope was a letter that came to be marked as Exhibit BL-1, filled with expletives, and from reading it, Convinced police that not only were they dealing with a strange and disturbed individual, but that it was almost certainly a letter from the doctor's killer. I won't repeat all of the graphic language contained within here, but half stenciled and half handwritten, with spelling mistakes and poor grammar, it read as follows Hello, chums. I'm writing this as you won't get any nearer to me to talk and walk away. I know what I've done. I know I'm facing life. Pig shit Leonard. Leonard was again spelt incorrectly. Dick face. You have me wrong. I have no conscience. Smashing his head gave me a buzz. Better than smack. I could get addicted to it. If I did, you'd soon know. Believe me. This is no wind up. I'd done the business on his head. Who else would know about the hamster cage in the back bedroom? Or the empty dresser's wardrobes? Right weird expletive he was he was a skin expert eh when i'd finished he didn't have much skin not on his head anyway that was a little test i set myself i phoned pigs for fun so could laugh at you know your every move pig you're barking up the wrong tree with theft more like fun do i sicken you pig sicken was spelt with the c missing from it you ain't seen nothing yet there was an oriental symbol drawn at the bottom of this first page and below this the handwritten words death is release one has to live by the chosen way or not at all the second page contained a scrawled poem about martial arts and ways of discipline to adapt that was ultimately found to be taken from the book The Miko by US author Eric Van Lustbaden and which read If my karma is to conquer, I shall conquer. If my karma is to be conquered, I shall be conquered. What difference does it make? Heaven and earth are my parents. Saika is my home. Stoicism is my body. Flash of lightning my eyes. Sakatsu Jiksai my strategy. Kaizen my designs. Rinkihoin my principles. And it ends. I can throw my life away at an instant. Can you? It's hardly the bloody collected works of Churchill or anything, is it? It's quite chilling, though, and at first it could be dismissed as the work of a crank. People do do this type of spiteful and mind boggling things in major investigations, after all, don't they? Yet the mention of the hamster cage grabbed police attention. Laura's hamster had been kept in the airing cupboard, but had been eaten away at clothes so David had placed it and its cage into the back bedroom only a couple of days before the murder, where there were also empty wardrobes. There were only four people who could have accurately described the location of that cage. David himself, Bora, David's cleaner, who had been ruled out of the inquiry immediately, or the killer himself. By almost the same time, police had another gift of a clue. A team of eight scene-of-crime officers had spent almost three weeks painstakingly going through 26 Cornfield Road, and yet the best evidence that they'd discovered had been the blood-stained co-op carrier bag found in the hall, and that would be given Evidence Ref CB-13. As it was theorised that this bag had contained the murder weapon, there was always the chance that Dr Burkett's killer had inadvertently handled the bag in some capacity, ungloved and that it may be possible to obtain fingerprints of the killer from it. The plastic bag had been stretched and worn in part, and following experiments with different tools, wrapping them in a similar way in plastic bags, then striking an object and examining them for similar results. This stretching was found to have most likely been caused by a cross pain hammer being the murder weapon. The co-op bag was subsequently placed into a sealed cabinet alongside a solution of super glue the composition of which reacted with the acid in the fingerprints. The bag was then coated in yellow food dye because the imprints on a white bag would be impossible to determine, and when the dye was carefully removed, sure enough, enough light traces of dye remained trapped along the fingerprint ridges that when placed into a multi-light source quasar machine, which causes the fingerprint to fluoresce, it was enough to reveal a partial fingerprint. Determined by senior fingerprint analyst Judith Kirby to be a partial right thumbprint in a spot on the carrier bag near its handle. That it was determined would have been exactly where Dr. Burkett's killer had gripped the shaft of the hammer. So, all very good then. Boom, we are proper having that. Except that at the time, there was no national database of fingerprints available. They were not computerised like they are today. Records were kept centrally at Durham, but were force indexed, and so even if you went off the basis that an offender offends where he or she is familiar with and knows Ergo likely where they're from and live, and this is supported by someone with a northeast accent, someone remaining local enough to post a letter two weeks after the murder, and displaying a good knowledge of the Linthorpe area of Middlesbrough, so you choose the Cleveland Force Records alone because this is a killer from the Northeast. It was still, back then, some 300,000 prints to have to trawl through. A daunting and laborious process indeed. Thinking that it would catch them their killer though, and it is bang on evidence like a fingerprint. Detectives then decided to fingerprint anyone arrested for an offence in Middlesbrough, however minor, so the killer would not slip out of the dragnet. There was a way for them to possibly narrow down this suspect pool further also though, and by three months into the investigation, they opted for it. And what did the investigating team turn to? Crime Watch UK, that's what they turned to. BBC, you are still twats. On Thursday the 10th of May, 1990, Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard appeared in the Crime Watch studio alongside Nick Ross who surely, surely should be narrating his own true crime podcast. BBC Sounds, you're missing a trick there. As he led viewers through the points of appeal made in a reconstruction appeal concerning the murder of Dr. Burkett. The bogus demon dispatch note, the bloodstained carrier bag, the telephone call to 999, the artist's impression of the man seen using the phone at the same time, and of course, the letter police had received from Dr. Burkett's killer. Now, not only is the Crime Watch May 1990 edition concerning the reconstruction and studio appeal, one of those that have been uploaded in full to YouTube and can be found to view with a link contained in the references in the episode show notes, but a couple of years later, an expanded look at the solved case formed an episode of spin-off show Crime Watch File, that is also contained within the same link. Following this episode, when you get chance, have a look at it. It's 30 plus years old now, but that's how you do a true crime documentary. Not all of the arty bollocks that there is nowadays in them. You know, pointless close ups of things, chatting to people who state the obvious. Dave, I'm looking at you there. Repetition and endless drone footage. I think part of Crime Watch's appeal and success for so many years was that it was direct, to the point, presented well, and memorable. I'd sooner watch those over endlessly than half the guff that comes out now. Your hundred part Netflix documentaries like this can kiss my swingers, really. But I digress. The Crime Watch appeal generated in excess of 50 calls between the studio and the incident room in Middlesbrough. And it was even considered that the killer himself might have called the studio or incident room, although he didn't. But the only call of any note really once the evidence was sifted through was that it was from a caller into Crime Watch that the source of the rambling prose in the letter received by police that referred to ways of discipline was identified. As I said it was from a book called The Miko by an American author named Eric Van Lustbaden. I looked up the synopsis of this book and to be fair of course I'm not a published author myself but I thought it sounded utter bollocks. However, although murder squad detectives were not to realise this until a couple of weeks later, on the same night as the Watch Appeal aired, and just a mere two miles from the station, on Middlesbrough's Oxford Road, events occurred that soon led police to their prime suspect in the case. Police Constable Andrew Vickers and a colleague were on mobile patrol when they drove onto Oxford Road and noticed, as they drew level with an alleyway, a motorcyclist parked up in the shadows. Stopping the car and approaching with intent to speak to the driver, PC Vickers gave chase on foot as the rider started up the motorcycle and sped off towards nearby Roman Road, hearing an almighty clatter ahead of him as the motorcycle collided with an object. By the time PC Vickers got to the site of the collision, the rider had fled, abandoning the motorcycle as its fuel tank was ruptured and so, as assistance had been contacted, when it arrived, officers began searching gardens and bushes in the Roman Road area for him. Shortly afterwards, a man in his early 20s, stinking of petrol, was discovered hiding in one of the gardens nearby, and was arrested on suspicion of theft. He was taken to the nearby Nick, where he was charged, and was then released on bail to appear in court at a later date. Oh, but not without having his fingerprints taken and copies sent off to Durham for classification, they were found to be already in the police system, however, as he had a criminal record stretching back over the previous decade. The man's name was Reginald James Wilson, following the crime watch appeal then, the investigation all of its lines of inquiry continued the cord, the letter. The trawl through suspects and fingerprint records. And then, over four months into the inquiry, there was a result. For after trawling through thousands upon thousands of fingerprints, senior fingerprint analyst John Bainbridge finally identified a match in the records with the print lifted from the carrier bag. Reportedly, it was his first day taking over the task also, as Judith Kirby, after checking for 18 weeks, had taken some personal leave how gutted would you be eh the print belonged to the right thumb of one reginald james wilson a 25 year old labourer who at that time lived in riverdale court in the middlesbrough area of winnie banks and who was well known to the police as he had a criminal record that stretched back to his early years born on the 7th of august 1964 Wilson had attended Middlesbrough's Victoria Road School and then went on to Hustler School in Acklum. But by the time he'd reached secondary school, he'd developed a hatred for authority figures and his behaviour was such that serious concerns were raised about him. And so from his early teens, he was taken into care for several periods, spending time at various children's homes, including the Acliffe Regional Assessment Centre. Over the next few years he made several court appearances for a variety of offences including theft, assault and arson and in 1985 was sentenced to four years in youth custody for a vicious shop robbery, two counts of wounding with intent and a breach of probation and as a result of this was banned from carrying firearms. Unsurprisingly an antisocial loner by nature Upon his release, Wilson moved into the two-bedroom semi-detached house in Riverdale Court with his girlfriend, Sharon Duffy, but only worked sporadically as a labourer, preferring instead to steal and commit burglaries to support himself, whilst obsessing over his favoured pastimes of physical fitness and survivalism, guns, dogs and motorcycles. Reportedly, in an attempt to further his perceived hard man image, Wilson had the words psychopath and chaos tattooed on his forehead a large tattoo of a striking cobra on the left side of his head and face and wore nothing but a combat smock and jeans he also kept four dogs two pit bulls one called rebel and another called villain a doberman and a rottweiler all of which were all kept in a run at the back of his home however much like the individual we met last time John Taylor. Wilson also displayed cruelty to animals once killing two of his Doberman puppies by throwing them against the wall of the spare bedroom claiming to his girlfriend that their whining was annoying him. So he sounds a monster indeed doesn't he? Nasty individual all over and it was certainly his fingerprint on that carrier bag. Was he a killer though? In conjunction with detectives from the regional crime squad, Detective Chief Inspector Leonard authorised a team of detectives to partake in surveillance on Wilson, to follow his every move, and to build up a picture of the man they suspected was a dangerous and vicious killer. A creature of habit, over the next few days the officers noticed Wilson, habitually clad in his camouflage clothing like another prospective Black Panther, would regularly head out and wrecky premises to burgle, or things to steal in his local area, particularly motorcycles. He was observed stealing at least one of these during this surveillance, though of course, no attempt was made to arrest him. He was also noticed constantly wearing headphones whilst out, and although it was at first thought that these were attached to a Walkman, it was later found to be a high-frequency scanner that could monitor the emergency services. After three or four days of this observation, the decision was made to arrest Wilson. And on the morning of the 20th of June 1990, after watching him entering a telephone kiosk on Acklam Road near his home, a team of detectives converged on it and arrested Wilson on suspicion of the murder of Dr. David Burkett, conveying him to Dunning Road Police Station as a team of officers set out to search his home. When police looked into where he lived, they were horrified at what they found. Some sources claim they were hidden under the stairs, some claim behind a plasterboard wall in the spare bedroom, perhaps over a mix of both. But Wilson had a literal arsenal in his home. Among the weapons found at Wilson's home in Riverdale Court by police using a telescopic sensor were an axe, two sawn-off shotguns, between 73 and 90 shotgun cartridges a handgun two crossbows replacement crossbow strings and crossbow bolts there were also flares a crossbow scabbard and shotgun carrying case fireworks four daggers and horrific self-made knuckle dusters studded with two inch long nails more than one article also claims even had a rocket launcher Along with this cache of weapons were a pair of black woolen gloves with a hole in the right thumb that corresponded exactly to the revealed part of the thumb that would leave the thumbprint that was found upon the co-op carrier bag. Also in Wilson's home, in the loft police found several sheets of paper with doodles upon them, including writings matching the rambling missive about Zen and discipline and all that, drawings of skulls and words such as survival, which had been stenciled with a helix stencil set, which was also found there as evidence. Subjected to later testing, several of these blank sheets of paper were found to have the indentations of the stenciled letter that had been sent to police upon them, verbatim and exactly matching. A video recording of the Crime Watch U.K. edition that had featured an appeal concerning Dr. Burkett's murder was also found as was a dog lead made from the identical cord that had been found tied around Dr. Burkett's arms, and an amount of headed notepaper bearing the logo, Demon Dispatch, which it was later to transpire, had been stolen in a burglary at Alan Thompson's home about a year before. Though he and Sharon had no home telephone, a telephone directory was found at the property, with an asterisk next to the names of Dr. David Burkett. Alan Thompson, the former director of Demon Dispatch, and ominously, Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard. But most alarmingly, a notebook was found containing what can only be described as a kill list, written in Wilson's own hand, which he headed Top Pigs, and in which he described his aim was to plan to kill as many pigs as I can before they kill me. Kill one frighten a hundred oh yes his plan went on kill as many pigs as i can before they kill me if in doubt kill anyone who you think has the slightest suspicion strategy false 999 calls to an awaiting ambush flag a police car down to his death and wait for a beat bobby 999 calls just come back from work and rear window has been tampered with or back door has been forced open, someone has broken your window, garage has been broken into, property damaged, daughter or son is missing and has been assaulted. If more than one comes, depending on the escape route and place of ambush, if good, still go ahead with plan. If not, 100% sure abort. Alongside this, the notebook also contained a list of police frequency band numbers, against the letters POL and police officers and their addresses, with top of Wilson's kill list, being then Deputy Chief Constable of Cleveland Police, Jack Ord. It was believed that on one of his many visits to police stations, Wilson had somehow stolen an internal telephone directory and matched the officers' names and numbers included with those in the phone book to find their addresses. There was also evidence to suggest that he had made at least one attempt to start working his way through this list also. Wilson was found to have in his possession the key to an abandoned, dilapidated property in Middlesbrough's Union Street, number 265, which he'd been using as a place to lay low and as a general doss house. The squalid property was covered with hateful slogans, paintings of skulls and graffiti including 13 years of hell now it's my turn soon pig up yours Kopfjäger a German word meaning headhunter he'd also scrawled you ain't seen nothing yet number 265 Union Street is less than 30 yards from the telephone box with the same number as the delivery note posted through Dr Burkett's door the box that Dr Burkett's killer had waited at for him to ring. Chillingly, this number had also recently been used to call 999. Former detective who had worked on the case, Ray Morton, said later. There had been a bogus 999 call to the police control room from that box. This was to try, we thought, to lure police to Union Street with a view to try and kill a police officer. Fortunately, a pair of officers had arrived in response to the call, a report of domestic disturbance, and so the plan had been aborted. Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard said later, They'll probably never know just how lucky they were. If one had gone, he would almost certainly have killed him. I reckon you're bloody right there, Brian. And what would Wilson say in response to such a plethora of overwhelming, compelling evidence? Ray Morton recalled It was the best moment in my 30 years in the police. He was our man, there was no doubt about that. Then that's when it started to become my responsibility to eventually interview him. But it was the most intense murder investigation I'd been with, so I was really pleased personally to be given that role. We put a lot of evidence to him and he came over as a total psychopath. The arrogant, overconfident Wilson denied everything that was put to him, even down to the fact that his right thumbprint was on the carrier bag found at the murder scene. Though he admitted he knew where Cornfield Road was, it was only from the television and newspapers. He had never seen, met, or been treated by Dr. Burkitt, and had never been inside the property. He denied sending the letter and that the stenciling was down to him. Denied writing the bogus dispatch note and everything else. The cord found at his home. The similarities of phrases between the letter sent to police and his own doodlings. The Union Street property being so close to the telephone box with the same numbers as, as the delivery notice posted through Dr. Burkett's door. It was all mere coincidence. On the 22nd of June 1990, Reginald Wilson was charged with the murder of Dr David Burkett and alongside his girlfriend Sharon Duffy who was at the time charged with burglary though the charges were ultimately discounted and she was released after six days in custody appeared in court before Teesside magistrates on the 23rd of June to answer charges of this of burglary and theft theft and handling of theft of a vehicle and unlawfully possessing a sawn-off shotgun denying all and being remanded in custody. By the time he appeared to be remanded in further custody on Friday the twentieth of july nineteen ninety, he had had a further charge added to this list, one of attempted murder, as eight days before, on Thursday the twelfth of july, whilst in a prison van being taken to the same court, Wilson had violently attacked prison officer Alan Reed. How he'd attempted to kill him is not reported. But for this remand appearance and going forth until the hearing in which he was committed for trial at Teesside Crown Court on the 18th of September 1990, Wilson was always handcuffed between two officers. When Wilson's trial began at Durham Crown Court on Monday the 1st of July 1991, he pleaded not guilty to the murder of Dr David Burkett even though prosecuting counsel Franz Muller Casey told the court in his opening address that there was the clearest possible evidence that the man responsible for the killing was Reginald Wilson. The defendant, for his own satisfaction, set out to commit the perfect murder. The court then heard of Dr Burkitt's background and the events both leading up to and following his murder, as I've described which Mr Muller told the court had been as a result of catastrophic head injuries caused by a heavy implement like a hammer and detail and evidence given by Home Office pathologist Dr Harvey McTaggart had consisted of one blow to the front of the right ear, four blows behind the right ear, two to the back of the head, four around the left ear and six to the left side of his face. That's some onslaught and injury that, isn't it? Obliterated, as I said before, isn't really an exaggeration there, sadly. Testimony after testimony was then given by police and experts alike concerning the undeniable evidence I've accounted. Handwriting expert Michael Hall told how he had matched the writing on the bogus dispatch note with Wilson's own. The court heard testimony as to how the indentations on the blank pieces of paper removed from Wilson's home showed up the stenciled letter how the identical cord was discovered in a drawer in Wilson's kitchen and how the fingerprint on the carrier bag was revealed, developed and traced. But there were other particularly powerful witnesses too, such as Laura Burkett, who had had to take a year off her studies after the murder, so traumatised had she been, who bravely described to the court discovering her father's body the same day as a 15-minute police video of Dr Burkett's home including scenes of him dead lying on the floor surrounded by blood and with the back of his head allegedly holed by the hammer was shown to the jury wilson still flanked by two prison officers had looked at the film without displaying emotion and only occasionally stroked the left side of his face simon Burkitt also told the court of how it had been he who had noticed the missing medieval skull which he remembered from his visit the previous Christmas, had been adorned with a sprig of holly sprouting from a hole in the top and placed in the window as a Christmas joke. Wilson's former girlfriend, Sharon Duffy, who was at the time living at an undisclosed address in fear of Wilson reaching out from behind bars to get her for her betrayal, was another who also gave evidence at his trial. She told the court that she and Wilson had lived together from November 1988 and in 1989 they moved into a two-bed housing association home in Riverdale Court in Winnie Banks. On the night of Dr Burkett's murder, she said she'd returned home from work as a cleaner at local Wimpy at about 6pm, and that Wilson came in between 6.30 and 6.45 after her, before going out again at about 8.50 and returning an hour and a half later. His behaviour in the weeks following the murder had changed, she said, detailing the horrific incident with the Doberman pups, saying how Wilson would obsessively watch crime Stoppers appeals about the murder, and had asked her uncharacteristically to specifically video crime watch that May when it was on the video of which was found during the search of his house, and how only days after Dr. Burkett's death Sharon remembered him holding and playing with a similar silver watch to that that had been taken from dr Burkitt, and when she'd asked him about it wilson had gotten angry and said that it was his father's sharon never saw the watch again she told the court of how wilson had written the graffiti on the unoccupied house in union street including the words kopfjäger death pigs and the phrase you ain't seen nothing yet the same phrase that appeared in the anonymous letter sent to investigating detectives in the weeks after the killing. She claimed that she'd often seen Wilson stenciling and confirmed that Wilson also had a radio scanner for picking up police messages. That communications expert Alan Coates had said was preset to 90 channels, 38 of which were those used by police, and also told of the source of the green and black cord that had been found in their kitchen. Sharon claimed that Wilson had sold his dog to a woman who lived in nearby Ayr Street and then, making a note of the address, had one night a few weeks later burgled the house and stolen the dog back, complete with lead. Now unsurprisingly, Wilson refuted all of this when he took the stand in the second week of the trial and denied his guilt, claiming that what he knew, he only knew from what he'd seen Read and heard in newspapers and in court, he claimed that until he saw a photo of Dr. Burkett, he had never seen him before, nor had he been to his house or ever been treated by him. Wilson claimed that on the day of the murder, he had visited his mother's home at three pm and left around four, cycling home and arriving at about five pm where he watched a film until Sharon arrived home from work at six p m Five minutes after she got back. He went out for 15 minutes to check on two bikes that he'd seen parked up earlier and at about 8.30pm he went back out and to his mum's and apparently stayed there for an hour. This is his tale, totally unsupported by witness evidence and contradicted entirely by Sharon Duffy. Wilson admitted lying to the police during some of the six and a half hours of recorded interviews taken after his arrest in which he'd said very little, for when they found a key to the Union Street property, he told police he had no connection to the place, and denied knowledge of it. During cross-examination, he was asked about and admitted to having written the words on the walls there, and eventually was to accept that he'd been in Union Street at about 9pm, when the emergency call was made that Saturday evening. He also told the jury he accepted that the anonymous letter sent to DCI Leonard had probably been written by the murderer, but denied he had wrote it, even when it was highlighted that the name on the envelope to the DCI was addressed Leonard incorrectly spelt, which Wilson had spelt exactly the same way during writing a sample passage of handwriting at interview, trying to explain in court there are probably a number of people around who spell Leonard with an odd. He was less accepting when questioned and asked to explain about the sheets of paper found at his home that showed impressions of this same anonymous letter sent to DCI Leonard, which Mike Hall had used as detesting to show definitively had been part-written and stenciled over these sheets of paper, saying, I cannot, I can't offer any explanation. Other pieces of paper ripped up and found in the attic were letters or essays found to contain words and phrases identical to those written in the letter. For example, Saika Tandon and Sakatsu Jiksai, plus the phrase, you ain't seen nothing yet. Franz Muller KC told him, There cannot be many letters which contain these phrases. It would be remarkable to have even two letters with the same phrases. Yet all are phrases of yours. Wilson weakly claimed that he had simply copied lines of the mantra from when it was shown on Crime Watch, even though a fuller version of it was found in his home. You ain't seen nothing yet, meanwhile, he claimed was simply a line from a song, which is true enough by Batchman Turner and the Right Honourable Sir Jeremy Overdrive, but unless you're smashy, you wouldn't be so obsessed with it. So you'd write it down in three different locations, all relevant to a murder inquiry, would you? Following an 18 day trial on Thursday, the 25th of July 1991, the jury unanimously found Reginald James Wilson guilty of the murder of Dr. David Burkitt and all charges he faced after eight hours' deliberation, though the charge of attempted murder of a prison officer was deferred to remain on file. Following the verdict being announced, Durham Crown Court then heard how an arms cache and a hit list of senior police officers he planned to murder were found at Wilson's home, with prosecution James Spencer Casey saying how he drew up an inventory of his weapons and addresses of policemen using the heading Top Pigs that he apparently planned to lure police on fake 999 calls and then kill them. I think the jury decided right eh? there. Pre-sentencing, presiding Mr Justice Potts was given a psychiatric report which confirmed that Wilson was suffering from a psychopathic disorder, saying He must be regarded as having considerable potential for causing harm to others. He is less impulsive and more calculating than many psychopaths, rendering him more of a liability jailing Wilson for life Mr Justice Potts told him as he passed sentence you have been convicted of what in my view is clear evidence of a most appalling murder I regard you as an exceptionally dangerous man Mr Justice Potts also referred to another indictment against Wilson which was left on file accusing him of attempting to murder a prison officer while he was awaiting trial and then told Wilson he would be recommending to the Home Secretary that he would never be released, saying, life, in your case, should mean life. Wilson apparently screamed abuse at the jury as he was led away from the dock to begin his life sentence, shouting, you might contain me, but you'll never control me, understand that. Following the verdict Laura Burkett said with remarkable compassion I think he should stay in prison for a long while. I think in the long run the system may help him. People like that need more help than punishment. When asked how it had affected her family she said I think we're slowly coming to terms with it. We still think about it every day. It's really hard. It's hard to concentrate and my brother and sister find it hard too. We all have our ups and downs. Detective Chief Inspector Brian Leonard, who had led the hunt for Wilson, said He just selected a victim and then set about an elaborate plan to kill him. He was trying to commit, obviously, the perfect murder, to murder without motive. If he hadn't dropped that carrier bag, we would probably have never traced him, ever. He was so confident, he believed he would never be caught but he made mistakes. When I found out whose print it was, I knew we had the doctor's killer. After that, it was painstaking solid detective work which pieced together the rest of the evidence which got him convicted. We're just relieved he's behind bars. It was reported that Wilson was considering appealing against his conviction in August 1991, though it's unclear as to whether he did or not. If so, it was certainly unsuccessful and his whole life tariff was ratified in 1994 by then Home Secretary Michael Howard. Wilson proved to be a disruptive inmate as the years progressed. On New Year's Eve 1995, he was caught after he'd somehow cut through the bars in his cell at HMP Franklin in Durham, even having made and concealed a makeshift ladder from bits of old furniture in the hope of scaling the walls, though the ladder proved too heavy and cumbersome to carry. DCI Leonard said following this, I was concerned about the chance he would try to escape from custody. Someone from the Home Office rang me some time ago, and I said, This man is likely to try to escape, and of course, that's proved right. I have no doubt at all prison officers will be keeping a close eye on him from now on. He's obviously an extremely dangerous man. For him to escape would be a disaster as far as we're concerned. It will be a relief to everyone the fact he didn't, but security will be tightened up on him, no doubt. When, four years later, Wilson tried to stab another prison officer, deemed such a risk to other prisoners and staff, he was moved to a then-recently-opened special secure unit at Woodhill Prison in Buckinghamshire, designed to hold the most dangerous and disruptive prisoners in the system, being one of three inmates there alongside arguably Britain's most disruptive prisoner, Charles Bronson, and serial killer Robert Maudsley. Great neighbours to have there, eh? Security at Woodhill was of the highest order, with prisoners monitored on CCTV, and all doors opening only with visual and personal identification codes. The cells were austere, with furniture made from compressed cardboard which can't burn and beds of a concrete plinth, with prisoners on the lowest rung of this ladder being denied even basic personal possessions, such as books and radios, being encouraged to progress through the unit by earning privileges through good behaviour. However, the prison service said the new special unit for the three dangerous inmates was likely to involve a less severe regime than this, and that the step did not mean efforts would no longer be made to try to rehabilitate them a spokesperson said. We are not saying the key should be thrown away, it's just a realistic assessment of risk to say they are unlikely to be able to make their way through the Woodhill system. There are names that most people will have heard around, and we need to find some proper kind of accommodation for them for long periods of time, because it's unlikely that they'd be going back to mix in any kind of normal accommodation in the foreseeable future. We're not sure yet, what form that will take however by 2008 wilson was looking at a possible release just 17 years after his conviction on the 16th of may 2008 after reviewing his case at london's high court mr justice tugenhart ruled there was no justification for a whole life tariff in wilson's case saying that the starting point for setting Wilson's minimum jail term should be 15 years, before he increased this to 18 years to account for the extreme violence used in the murder. This is despite when applying to have his whole life tariff overturned, Wilson's lawyers had pointed to medical evidence that he was suffering from an untreatable psychopathic disorder at the time of the killing, and Judge Tugendhat had not disputed this. However, The judge emphasised that Wilson would only be granted his freedom if he could convince the parole board it is safe for them to do so, when, and if released, he would remain on perpetual life licence, subject to prison recall if he puts a foot wrong ever again. The decision meant that, after time spent on remand, Wilson could ask the parole board to free him as early as the following month. Now, unsurprisingly, this was a slap in the face to Dr. Burkitt's family. His daughter Laura explained, following the decision, the killing altered us all in different ways, both as people and as a family. It damaged our ability to flourish and be happy. There was no counselling at the time, no victim support scheme. The one thing that gave me some peace of mind was the knowledge that this man would remain in prison until the end of his life. Even so. What he did destroyed my emotional and physical well-being. I suffered terrible fear and panic, nightmares and flashbacks. For the first 10 years, I couldn't go into an empty room in a house. I couldn't even go to the bathroom on my own. I'd sit outside my home in the car, waiting for hours until someone came to accompany me inside. I couldn't go out after dark by myself or sleep by myself. I lost all the friends I'd grown up with because they couldn't cope with the horror of the situation. That was hard for me, because I'm a social person. It took years and years to build any kind of normality, but very gradually, things began to improve. Last year, I moved house, and for the first time since Dad's murder, began living on my own, I started to mend myself. At last, I felt ready to face what had happened to Dad. Regaining confidence and normality was something I'd worked so hard at. Now, the absolute terror that this man could get out threw me back to February 4th, 1990, back to the nightmares and not being able to eat or be alone. The first we knew about Wilson's review was when a local policeman who'd worked on the original case knocked on my mother's door two days before the hearing to tell her. He suggested there was nothing to worry about, but the next thing was a local news report saying Wilson's sentence had been reduced to 18 years. And he could therefore apply for parole it was frightening we were dumbstruck horrified how did the case get to the high court without anyone telling us why weren't we the victims informed the sentence was going to be re-examined and given the chance to put our views forward our dad who suffered 17 hammer blows was murdered in a premeditated way his sadistic killer had planned other murders sawn off shotguns and crossbows were found hidden under the floor of his house he had even tried to kill a prison officer in the run-up to the trial how could the revised sentence be so lenient we'd known a degree of safety in that he would never be released all that was gone somebody should have contacted us nobody did there was a lot of argument about who was to blame for not trying to find us we discovered we should have had a victim liaison officer and that we could have made a victim impact statement to the court, we felt there was a real danger, not just to ourselves, but to other people. Powerful words indeed, eh? And what a disgrace. Incensed at not being alerted to Wilson's tariff review, and with only a month in which to appeal against his reduced sentence, the Burkitt family contacted 37 solicitors and various victim support groups, but none of whom knew how to help. With a week gone, and the Burkett family still having no answers, they set out their anxieties and objections to the judgement in a letter to then Attorney General Baroness Scotland, describing how they'd been traumatised and their lives warped by the murder of their father, saying, How can a life-meaning-life life sentence, which could be anything up to 70 years considering Wilson's age at the time of the murder? be so dramatically and inexplicably reduced? Is our father's life worth less now than it was then? Baroness Scotland acted with remarkable speed and referred the case to the Court of Appeal because she agreed that the reduced sentence failed to reflect the seriousness of the crime. And sure enough, on July 30th, Judge Tugendhat's ruling was overturned and Wilson was re-sentenced to a new minimum of 30 years. Laura and her sister were in the High Court to hear the Queen's Bench Division President, the newly appointed Lord Chief Justice Sir Igor Judge, what a great name, eh? Mr Justice Penry Davy and Mr Justice Simon asked the court in a rare move to just pause for one moment and hold a minute's silence to remember their father who Sir Igor described had been the sacrificial pawn in Wilson's ongoing battle with authority. Laura recalled later, It was lovely to have that little bit of silence for Dad, and quite unprecedented. Sir Igor noted that the 18-year minimum term was manifestly lenient for such a serious murder and said Justice Tugendhat was in complete ignorance of Wilson's frightening level of sadism, because he didn't have the appropriate paperwork and recommended an overhaul of the shortcomings of the tariff review process. He seemed aghast to be told that everything before the tariff review judge had been prepared by the defence, with nothing from the prosecution or the victims. This is an omission that should not happen again, he said. A Ministry of Justice spokesperson said following the decision that ordinarily victims were invited to submit representations during the tariff review process but due to I quote a regrettable oversight the Burkitt family's rights were overlooked for which ministers had apologized. I'm sure that meant the world to them too what an absolute disgrace. Two years later, Wilson was back at the High Court, this time challenging a prison service decision not to allow him a face-to-face interview with Guardian journalist Simon Hattonstone and HMP Wakefield, who was wishing to interview Wilson, who was then one of 27 acutely dangerous prisoners held in the prison service's close supervision centre, and among the eight hardcore inmates held within Wakefield's exceptional risk unit to gauge the impact of life sentences on prisoners at the high court on thursday the 14th of may 2010 lord justice laws and mr justice irwin dismissed his challenge noting that mr hattonstone was permitted telephone and letter contact with wilson and face-to-face contact was not necessary crucially justice irwin said a live interview might give wilson a platform on which to romanticize glorify or glamorize his past that's not mere speculation it relates to the history of the way he has presented himself both before and after his conviction it seems to us that's not a fanciful consideration said mr justice irwin by december 2022 wilson's minimum tariff had expired and he had had one previous parole appeal which was rejected. But that month, he was told that his bid to be transferred to an open prison had been recommended to Justice Secretary Dominic Raab. The parole board said, in a summary of this decision, that Wilson's behaviour had improved hugely since 1999, and he had taken therapeutic and behaviour offending courses, stating, The panel was told that Mr Wilson had developed exceptional levels of personal responsibility, life skills, resilience and maturity mr wilson himself did not seek release but asked the panel to recommend his transfer to an open prison so he could continue to work with professionals to develop release plans and of course would be allowed periods of temporary release when in open conditions however on the 16th of january 2023 It was reported that the Ministry of Justice had rejected Wilson's recommended transfer, a spokesperson said. Reginald Wilson is still in closed conditions, and the Parole Board's recommendation was rejected. Parole Board decisions are solely focused on what risk a prisoner could represent to the public if released, and whether that risk is manageable in the community. A panel will carefully examine a huge range of evidence, including details of the original crime and any evidence of behaviour change, as well as explore the harm done and impact the crime has had on the victims in the lead-up to an oral hearing. Evidence from witnesses such as probation officers, psychiatrists and psychologists, officials supervising the offender in prison, as well as victim personal statements may be given, and it is standard for the prisoner and witnesses to be questioned at length during the hearing which often lasts a full day or more. Parole reviews are undertaken thoroughly and with extreme care. Protecting the public is our number one priority. However, the parole board added that Wilson, now aged 58, will be eligible for another parole hearing next year, and the date of the next review will be set by the Ministry of Justice. Let's hope that this time, impact statements from Dr. Burkett's family are a priority for this, and they take heed from them, as well as reflecting upon the words of one of the officers who'd worked on the hunt for Wilson. Now retired Detective Inspector Ray Morton, who had said, following Wilson's imprisonment in 1991, he set out to kill and did it. If he'd not been caught, he would have killed again. He is a psychopath and a dangerous psychopath. If he ever gets out, I'm sure that he will kill again. He would have made good on his kill list. I certainly wouldn't bet against it, would you? A terrible crime this one, isn't it? And one that raised more than a few pointers for me. Categorically, the first being why on earth a judge can deem a starting point of 18 years for such a brutal and premeditated murder as being acceptable what an absolute slap in the face for dr Burkett's family and thankfully baroness scotland swooped in and acted when she did what an absolute disgrace and surely such a decision should call for the sentencing judge in questions bias and competence to be called into question and under inquiry with a view to them being disbarred for reginald wilson This is an individual who not only committed the most brutal of murders but had planned a massacre of police officers due to his hatred of authority and had gone as far towards this as to create a kill list of targets that he'd sourced out addresses for and collected a horrendous sounding arsenal of weapons to do so. I can't verify the authenticity of the claim Wilson had a rocket launcher but his hall sounded enough to commit atrocity with as it was and could he have gotten one, I'm in no doubt that he would have done. This is an individual who was so excited and gloating about what he'd done that he contacted police mere hours after the murder, unable to wait, desperate to read or hear about his exploits, and who took the time to stencil out a goading, mocking letter to police rambling on about his crimes and his beliefs. An individual who attempted to murder a prison officer Before he'd even come to trial for the murder of doctor Burkitt, and then who tried again several years later, his hatred of authority in no way diminished, and who even attempted to escape from prison, perhaps to put his kill list into action still, who has been held in a secure unit within a maximum security prison for the majority of his sentence. I don't believe personally that such an individual should ever see the light of day again. I'm also unsure of why exactly Dr. Burkett was selected as a victim. Wilson has never revealed any motive for the murder and is yet to admit or give any reason or explanation for why it was Dr. Burkett he selected. Indeed, no direct connections between he and Wilson could ever be found. However, through researching, there are two possibilities suggested. Several officers who brought him to justice were convinced that Wilson had held a grudge against the doctor for many years because he had years before chased him and his friends from a then derelict house at the back of his home, which they used for glue sniffing, and he'd acted upon that grudge many years later. Now, it isn't unprecedented this. We heard of a similar sentiment a few years ago on the show in the episode The Judge and the Grudge. But if this is why, then like that tale, it is extreme, to say the least. The other possibility, and this seems somewhat more chilling, but which could fit in with Wilson's strange doodlings, is the Norman skull that Dr. Burkett had. Now reference the missing skull, which incidentally is not reported if it was ever found or not, but it was thought possible that this is what had attracted Wilson to select Dr. Burkett as his victim after being attracted by the skull in his front window, and he came up with a scheme to get through security conscious Dr Burkett's front door, hence the whole courier charade. He'd posed as a motorcycle courier wearing a crash helmet because it had the advantage of hiding his features, especially a distinctive tattoo of a serpent on his face. So, when a helmeted figure turned up on his doorstep, Dr Burkett was quite at ease, and Wilson simply stepped into the hall behind him, raised the hammer wrapped in a carrier bag and brought the weapon crashing down smashing the doctor's skull now that first blow would have been enough to knock dr burkett unconscious but in an orgy of bloodlust a further 16 blows were delivered to him some in the hall and some in the study it is also believed he may have searched the house for the skull before finding it and had then turned over the body and inflicted the last of the blows around the doctor's left eye, because, by accident, or more chillingly, perhaps by design, Dr. Burkett was left with almost identical injuries to those on the medieval skull. Chilling indeed, the actions of a madman. But of course, no one knows for sure but Reginald Wilson. No one else will likely ever know. What do you think? I would love as ever hearing your thoughts and feedback on the account that I've brought you in the episode, The Kill List, which you can do so in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links, wherever I don't mind and I'm always happy to chat back with you. I am aware that I've gone on longer than the Wagatha Christie debacle now, so I'm wrapping up here, and it's on to the next tale of darkness. From me and the Mog, we both thank you for joining us today, and look forward to you doing so again soon. All that remains for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe